1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod, or text WonderyPod to
2: 500, 500 Often there's a grieving family there. We offer our condolences, and then we assist in kind of collecting that, that person who died.
3: There are so many dead, the military has been mobilized to collect them. But the war on COVID-19 is gaining a new advantage, a possible treatment in the blood of survivors.
4: They must be incredibly valuable to you. Well, we're hopeful that this might be one of the, the tools that might help us to defeat this virus.
5: Not since the Great Depression have so many in this country faced the prospect of being unable to put food on their table.
6: Do you know how many people you feed here every day? Out of this one, around 2,000.
5: 2,000 people?
6: Yeah, but, but the number is going to keep increasing. Chef
5: Jose Andres' team has fed nearly 2 million people so far during the pandemic. He's among those who believe the federal government needs to change the way it looks at the country's food security.
6: You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You only have to change the way you think.
7: Kabuki is, well, what is it exactly? Performed exclusively by men, part opera, part dance, part pro wrestling. And it is proudly more than a little over the top. Kabuki has been called a masterpiece of heritage. And here's a good sign you've reached the pinnacle of this art. You have a personal spritzer perfuming the path to your dressing room. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm
3: John Dickerson. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes.
1: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
3: Americans are suffering in the greatest numbers of the pandemic. Known infections here are more than the next four countries combined. According to data from Johns Hopkins, only about 5% of infected Americans have died. But this weekend, that left more than 37,000 dead, nearly one in four of world fatalities. Hospitals are battling in Boston, Detroit, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Chicago, Miami, and New Orleans but nothing compares to New York City and its suburbs, which have more known infections than any other nation. New Yorkers are fighting at the extremes of life and death. Survivors are volunteering to treat the living as the city calls in reinforcements to bring dignity to the dead. To the icons of New York, a symbol of the pandemic has been added, more than 180 unmarked trailers, cooled inside below 40 degrees, are holding many of the city's more than 13,000 lost souls. The trailers anticipate the dead outside 58 hospitals, including Brooklyn Hospital Center, where Bob Olacino is chief operating officer.
4: We had our first trailer delivered and we were told it would fit 45 bodies. The second trailer was delivered, we were informed that we had to hire a carpenter to build shelving in that trailer to accommodate three times that amount, which we did.
3: There is an image of a forklift lifting bodies into one of your trailers. Getting the bodies into the trailer
4: was something we had to struggle with, hence the use of the forklift. We've since built ramps, we are able to manage that process in a much more respectful manner. It's not a a pretty picture.
3: Today, 90% of Brooklyn Hospital Center's patients suffer from COVID-19.
4: We're referred to as a safety net hospital. Safety net hospitals, by definition, means that 50% of your patient population is on Medicaid. We serve a very poor
3: community. Olacino told us every day in his hospital about 35 virus patients recover and around a dozen die.
4: Now we're being asked to segregate the claimed from the unclaimed bodies.
3: Bodies claimed by families will eventually go to overwhelmed funeral homes. Unclaimed bodies are taken by the city medical examiner. I think
4: they're preparing for the fact that they may need to uh, prepare for mass
3: burials of unclaimed bodies. Burials in common graves are underway on Hart Island in Long Island Sound. It's New York's potter's field where more than a million have been interred since the 19th century. In the pandemic, about 100 people are buried here a week, several times more than usual. These are the simple pine caskets of people who were unclaimed or released by families that couldn't afford a funeral.
8: It's very difficult, very challenging, Um, But in the same way we did in 9-11, everyone, it's all hands on deck.
3: Dr. Barbara Sampson leads an 800-person staff as the city's chief medical examiner.
8: We're having to deal with things on a scale that we have never before anticipated, although we have planned in the past for uh, pandemics.
3: You planned for pandemics and trained for pandemics, but not one this large?
8: The scale and the rapidity uh, is something that uh, no one could have imagined. Not only is there an overwhelming of the healthcare system. There is an overwhelming of the uh, funeral directors and every essential service in in this city and uh, across the country.
3: Have you called in reinforcements?
8: Absolutely. There is no way we could do this on our own, even with such a large agency. So our main main source of reinforcements has been the military.
3: How many bodies are you recovering in a typical day? So on a standard day, I, I
2: collect between 30 and 40 on average that's with my team of 25 people
3: lieutenant sean lavin leads a fatality search and recovery team for the new york air national guard they carry the dead for the medical examiner they do the paperwork we do the lifting are there other teams similar to yours deployed from different units we started with
2: 13 members three weeks ago I think there'll be close to 400 people
3: doing what we're doing um, by the end of this week. One reason for the increase is the number dying at home or outside hospitals, about four times the usual.
2: Our initial information from my commanding officer was we'd be collecting just from hospitals. Uh, But after arriving here, we moved quickly from hospitals into residences and long-term care facilities.
3: It was a long-term care facility we visited with Lavin's team and the medical examiner's van. We treat every collection as it's a possible COVID. Tell me what the process is like. So on a call, all
2: of my members are donning proper PPE before they go on. So some kind of Tyvek suit, gloves, mask, eye pro. Uh, we go into a residence. Often there's a grieving family there. We offer our condolences. We. Make the necessary adjustments with other furniture or anything in the room, and then we assist in kind of collecting that person who died.
3: Some who have died or fallen ill are among those the city was counting on most. How is your staff doing?
4: Holding up fairly well. I uh, we've we've lost about 30 percent of our employee population to the disease. You've lost almost a third of your employees to illness? Yes, we have. Everybody from doctors down to
3: housekeepers. How many of your staff members have lost their lives? As of right now, five. Will you
4: describe them to me? I think the one that had the biggest impact on us was one of our patient transporters. We referred to him as the mayor. Ed, I'll give you his first name. Ed, um, as a patient transporter, was one who was responsible for bringing bodies from the floors to the morgue when we had patients expire. And when we had to bring Ed down to the morgue, the employees lined the route and prayed for him. It was heartbreaking, to say the least.
3: Your employees that are returning after being ill now have antibodies. Correct. They must be incredibly valuable to
4: you. Well, it's, we're hopeful. We're hopeful that this might be one of the, the tools that might help us to
3: defeat this virus. Brooklyn Hospital Center is one of many hospitals testing what's called convalescent plasma, Plasma is the liquid that carries blood cells and antibodies made by the immune system to attack viruses. A recovered virus patient's plasma can be transfused into a patient who's still suffering.
9: In theory, if you give a large enough dose and early enough in the disease process, the antibodies in the convalescent plasma will neutralize the viral particles in the bloodstream of that individual, and that could lead to a more mild course of disease, and it could lead to fewer complications.
3: Dr. David Rich is president of New York's Mount Sinai Hospital part of a national convalescent plasma program being led by the renowned Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. What is
9: the history of this kind of plasma therapy? It has been shown to be effective in certain uh, uh, epidemics and less effective in others. For example, there was some evidence that it was a benefit for the uh, SARS epidemic. Uh, in the early part of the 2000s, and there may have been some benefit also for the swine flu, also known as H1M1, but it did not seem to be effective in treatment of Ebola disease.
3: Recovered patient Meredith Berkman donated plasma after managing her COVID-19 symptoms at home.
10: At its worst, I would say, um, was the tightness in the chest, but manageable. Um, Terrible, terrible headache and just complete exhaustion.
3: David Burdoff also recovered and donated. My
0: symptoms were uh, gastrointestinal. I was vomiting quite a bit. Did you have respiratory symptoms? So I had a cough. I had a little bit of shortness of breath.
3: When tests show a patient eliminated the virus and has a high level of antibodies, they can volunteer to donate.
0: I figure, okay, I had this disease that everybody in the world is at risk for. I seem to have kicked it. Um, My blood might be useful for whatever science experiments that they might be doing, whatever treatments they might be
3: experimenting with. The donation is similar to giving blood, but only plasma is taken.
10: So as you're sitting there, you watch the bag filling with what I can only describe as liquid gold. I mean, literally and figuratively, the plasma is liquid gold.
3: The donors do not know who receives their plasma.
10: I felt that if you believe you can help someone else, you would, especially in a situation like this.
3: How are you selecting the patients in your hospital who receive the plasma?
9: Uh, What we're looking for are people within the first four days of hospitalization, so it's early enough that we would expect it would be effective, and for people who are showing that they're taking a turn for the worse.
3: It will take weeks to know whether plasma shows promise. So far nationwide, about 500 sick patients have received plasma, a tiny start with unknown benefits. Most of America was blindsided by the pandemic, but Sean Lavin's Air National Guard team has been preparing twice a year, working with mannequins in exercises, Ironically, the unit had long planned to be in New York in late March for a disaster drill with the medical examiner.
2: We've been training for a decade, since 2009, about how we collect fatalities in this kind of incident, but there's really no way to prepare for what we're currently going through. You can have all the actors you want or all the dummies laid out in a field, but when you're actually doing it real world with grieving families, uh, it's a much different atmosphere. How's your team holding up? It's stressful, but I think they're rising to the challenge. It's some of the, like, strongest people I would ever want to work with to kind of stop your day-to-day civilian life, put on the uniform, know full well what you're walking into, and then not complaining when you miss Easter or Passover, just getting the job done to kind
3: of help the city of New York. Nearly 200 trailers are now receiving the dead in the city of New York. We notice some are beginning to draw the sympathy of their neighbors. The city has another 90 trailers on standby, enough in the estimation of chief medical examiner Dr. Barbara Sampson.
8: I'm a New York native, so to see this happen again to New York City uh, after what we went through in uh, 9-11 just breaks my heart. Uh, But we have our role to play, and we're very proud to play it.
3: How do you bring dignity to so many dead?
8: One by one. You treat every person as an individual. Everybody who works here at OCME realizes it could be their mom or dad that is the next person who comes in. And you learn that working here. But we are going to do our best to serve every single family and t- to the best that we are able until we are not able to do that, but we will go down trying.
10: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
5: Not since the Great Depression have so many in this country faced the prospect of being unable to put food on their table. And it's not just families trying to feed themselves. Farmers, processing plants, and supermarkets have all experienced disruptions. Late Friday, President Trump directed $19 billion in relief for farmers and ranchers to maintain the integrity of our food supply chain and to aid local food banks. To understand the challenges of feeding a nation in the midst of a pandemic, we turn to Chef Jose Andres, whose disaster relief organization, World Central Kitchen, has in the past month helped make and serve more than 2 million free meals in at least 100 American cities.
6: Do we have enough food in the U.S.? We have enough food. We need to be thinking about how are we feeding ourselves and don't take it ever for granted. How many meals we are going to be by the end of this week?
5: Jose Andres has been thinking about innovative ways to feed people for decades, first as a world-famous chef, and now also as head of World Central Kitchen, a nonprofit he founded 10 years ago. How are you? Earlier this month, we were with him in New York City as he handed out food in Harlem, then checked on one of his kitchens preparing meals for first responders. A
6: few weeks ago, this place will be full. This
5: is what's left of Mercado Little Spain, a food hall Andres opened in New York just last year. It's one of 27 restaurants Andres owns in the U.S., nearly half of which are now closed. The rest are open for takeout or are being used to help feed the growing number of Americans who are struggling.
6: We are using a lot of the ingredients we still have here. And we have a lot of lentils and we had a lot of chorizo.
5: Before coronavirus, Andres had 1,600 employees. Most have now been furloughed. He's only been able to keep 250 working. These free meals are delivered to military personnel working in a makeshift hospital nearby. After standing in line, six feet apart, they get boxes of fresh-cooked penne bolognese.
6: Do you know how many people you feed here every day? Out of this one, around 2,000. 2,000 people? Yeah, but but the number is going to keep increasing. The good thing for us, Anderson, is that if all of a sudden we need to go up to 10 or 20,000 people, we are ready. Part of emergencies is to adapt, and to adapt by the day. When you talk about food and water, people don't want a solution one week from now, one month from now. The solution has to be now. The urgency of now is yesterday."
5: The urgency of now, Andres speaks of, is visible all across the country. Food banks are overwhelmed. When this one in San Antonio announced an emergency food distribution earlier this month, more than 10,000 people showed up. Their cars filled an enormous parking lot. Each family was given 200 pounds of food, gallons of milk, chicken, fruit and dry goods, enough to last two weeks. The nation's largest hunger relief organization, a nonprofit called Feeding America, supports a network of 200 food banks and 60,000 local food pantries. But even with hundreds of millions of dollars in donations and federal aid, they're struggling to meet demand. In a situation like this, people suddenly see how vulnerable we are,
6: how thin the safety net is for everyone. We have food banks uh, under the Feeding America umbrella that they've been doing an amazing job. But some of the smaller food banks, they've been running out of uh, budget. They don't have more money to buy, or they are overwhelmed because they don't have enough volunteers.
5: Andres' rural central kitchen tries to fill what he calls the blind spots, healthcare providers in New York.
11: Yeah, Thank you so
12: much.
5: In Thank Washington, D.C., the elderly and homeless who might not be able to get to a food
4: bank. How many do you think? Uh,
6: 25 15. you've been doing 15? everything.
4: It's 20 here.
6: Yeah. When this goes away, I come and we hug each other. But now we need to keep distance. We need to make sure that we keep showing up every day, sending a very clear message. We are here for you, and we are going to take care of you.
5: Rule Central Kitchen has been taking care of those affected by coronavirus since February. They brought fresh meals to cruise ship passengers quarantined on board the Diamond Princess in Yokohama, Japan. Using strict health protocols, they developed while doing emergency relief operations in Mozambique during a cholera outbreak.
6: The temperature is important.
5: Jose Andrés is vigilant about health precautions. And you're good. Constantly no, monitoring social distancing.
6: Guys, keep distance there, yeah? Hey, we need more lines on the ground. We need more lines on the ground.
5: And disinfecting everything along the way.
6: This
2: district right here is the poorest district in the United States.
5: Jose Andres's goal is far more ambitious than just handing out free meals. He wants the federal government to pay restaurants across America to hire back employees and feed the hungry. That? To prove it can work, World Central Kitchen is already doing it. They're spending millions of dollars raised through donations to partner with more than 400 restaurants. It keeps people employed in the restaurant, delivery people,
6: cooks, and it also serves vulnerable populations. What we've been doing is use the systems that are already in place. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You only have to change the way you think. World Central Kitchen has given money to restaurants in Los Angeles, New
5: Orleans, Chicago, and dozens of other cities. In Washington, D.C., they're paying this Michelin star restaurant, Maidan, $10 a meal to feed people in need. Andres insists the food be nutritious and tasty. Today, it's grilled chicken kebabs, carrots, and lentils. It will be delivered to 80 senior citizens.
6: We partner with them. We tell them, listen, we need you to help us feed this police station, this fire station, this hospital, this elderly home. And we need you to be doing so many meals per day uh, during uh, so many weeks. This is the way for us to be responding so quickly in so many cities at once. It's a model we first saw him develop
5: in Puerto Rico in 2017 after Hurricane Maria. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, was unable to provide meals for all those in need. So Andres began mobilizing existing kitchens, food distributors, and an army of volunteers to prepare and serve meals around the island. They did it so well, FEMA awarded World Central Kitchen two contracts in Puerto Rico worth $11.5 million. Now, in the midst of this pandemic, Andres is lobbying Republican and Democratic lawmakers to prioritize food as a national security issue and get restaurants back to work
6: by feeding the hungry. I do believe the federal government has to be playing a bigger role, not throwing money at the problem, but investing into the solutions. Government has to protect the restaurants, because every dollar goes into a restaurant when you dine out, tickles down across the economy. In a way, no other business does. We are able to pay the farmers and pay the fishermen and pay the people that do the delivery. And, and we are able to pay, obviously, our cooks and our wait- waiters and bartenders. It's a bigger industry than the airline industry. Restaurants in America are the DNA of a function in America. will not be an America as we know it if those restaurants don't come back to be part of the american uh, way of life you think that's a model that could actually work
11: yeah i think it's the model that will have to work Look, craig fugate
5: up. was head of fema for eight years under president obama and he likes the idea of government actions. funding restaurants Miami. to help the hungry Again, the we spoke with him via remote interview from florida what would it take to have that system be in place
11: well it'd be pretty straightforward uh, local governments would Uh, issue the contracts to local vendors produce meals under their authority to feed people in a disaster, and they would send that to the state, and the state would ultimately send it to FEMA for reimbursement.
5: The sudden closing of restaurants did more than cost workers their jobs. It created widespread disruption throughout the nation's food supply chain. Before the pandemic, by one estimate, 24 million cases of food were delivered every day to restaurants, schools, and large venues that serve meals. It was usually sent in bulk, and to repackage it for sale in grocery stores takes time and money. With restaurants closed, demand for butter and cheese has dropped significantly. One reason dairy farmers are dumping as much as 3.5 million gallons of milk every day. Farmers who can no longer get their products to restaurants and other customers are discarding millions of pounds of fresh fruit and vegetables. This newly harvested zucchini and squash has been left to rot in a Florida field. There's harvests from now through August around the country. These next
6: couple of months are crucial for the food supply. I don't believe the food supply is going to be an issue if we prepare for it. But if small farmers don't have anybody to sell and all of a sudden they start planting less because seeds cost money and all of a sudden a few months from now that output of food that we took for granted disappears there is a little issue we face.
5: Craig Fugate shares Jose Andres' concerns.
11: I don't think we run out of food per se, but I think being able to get fresh produce, get meats, a variety will go away. We may see a lot of grain and cereal-based products filling in uh, as the primary nutrients in the short run, Uh, but definitely if we see big disruptions to the production, particularly the consumables of fresh produce, dairies and milk, poultry operation, eggs and meat, Those are what I see as the most vulnerable, because they're the most people-intensive. This past week, a
5: meatpacking facility in Colorado, where four workers died from the virus, was closed down. And in South Dakota, a Smithfield Foods pork plant, which produces 18 million servings of pork a day, was also closed. More than 600 employees have tested positive there, and at least one worker has died. What do you want to make sure that people in government are thinking about now with this crisis when it comes to food supply
11: think big think worst case scenario you plan for that you don't wait for it to happen or you don't hope it won't happen let me just say to all of you that are working in the food industry at every level across the country just understand that you are vital
5: Vice President Pence recently tried to reassure food industry workers in farms and factories that efforts were being made to keep their workplaces safe.
11: And we need you to continue as a part of what we call our critical infrastructure to show up
5: uh, and do your job. But by the Department of Agriculture's own statistics, roughly half of hired crop farm workers are undocumented immigrants, as are many who work in food processing plants. That means despite being an essential part of our critical infrastructure, they're still vulnerable to arrest and deportation.
11: Part of the problem is because they're undocumented and the fear of being deported, they may not be reporting in sick or getting treatment or being isolated and therefore causing more spread because they're not given the same protection as other workers.
5: They're also, in some cases, working shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder in fields or on uh, you know, meat processing plants.
11: Yeah, doing social distancing and a lot of the agricultural operations will be almost impossible.
5: It's sort of ironic that all of a sudden, undocumented immigrants are now considered essential in the United States to feed the rest of us.
11: Yeah, it finally took a pandemic to make people realize without foreign-born workers, much of our economy doesn't work. A
5: situation like this, it highlights problems that already exist in society that people
6: haven't noticed. Suddenly, you see things. It's like an X-ray machine. In moments like these, inequalities manifest themselves Exponentially.
5: Jose Andres is an immigrant from Spain. He became an American citizen in 2013. He hopes that when this virus is finally under control, we don't forget all those who kept working to feed the rest of us.
6: When this is done, do you think it changes the way we'll see people? If we don't have a big explosion of empathy in this country around the world, I don't know when we will. From now on, we are going to be giving the respect they deserve to the delivery pizza guys, to the woman sitting on a supermarket uh, feeding entire uh, families in a neighborhood only by being there and putting her life at risk. All of a sudden, that immigrant that you thought that maybe you didn't like is the one that has been helping feed your community. All of a sudden, we are going to be more respectful to everyday Americans because now those everyday Americans, in my eyes, they are the heroes that kept America going, that kept America fed.
8: Ah. The comfort of your
10: favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
9: There really is no place
10: like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
7: If the story of coronavirus has dominated your thoughts, and how could it not, here's a story that likely hasn't. Before the global pandemic, Japan was set to confer one of its highest honors on one of its most towering celebrities a man who is supposed to be a kind of ambassador at the Tokyo Olympics. But Ebizo, so big he goes by only one name, is not an actor, a singer, or an athlete. Actually, he's all three. He's the brightest star in the cosmos of kabuki, the eccentric theater art unique to Japan. Kabuki stars are not just made. They're born into dynasties, distinguished families passing the craft, and that trademark kabuki glare from one generation to the next. We went to Japan in February to meet the man breathing fresh life into this beguiling 400-year-old art form. Kabuki is, well, what is it exactly? Performed exclusively by men, it is equal measures drama and melodrama, at once volcanic and temperate. Part opera, part dance, heart pro wrestling. And it is proudly more than a little over the top. Kabuki has been called a masterpiece of heritage by no less than the United Nations. And here's a good sign you've reached the pinnacle of this art. You have a personal spritzer perfuming the path to your dressing room. So it goes for Ebizo Ichikawa, Kabuki's biggest star. He invited us backstage for a rare look at preparations before a show. No ritual here is more elaborate, more central than the application of makeup, which the actors do themselves. When you go through that ritual of putting on the makeup, what do you go through? The makeup brings you into the
12: role. It's a time for you to step into that role and become the character.
7: If you think his makeup looks heavy, get a load of Ebizo's costume. 130 pounds and packed with ice to keep him cool for hours on stage. And the guy knows how to make an entrance. In this production, he plays a faithful lieutenant. Ironic, since in real life, Ebizo is the center of attention. Yet for all the extravagant trappings, Kabuki came from humble origins. In 1603, right around the time Shakespeare first started staging his plays in London, here in Kyoto, a woman named Okuni came down to the river and began performing interpretive dance dramas, which, like Shakespeare's plays, found an audience among the common folk. These stylized performances, once banned, grew to become a national art form. Kabuki, derived from a Japanese word meaning something a little off kilter. Weekend? Kyoto is where we met Kabuki's crown prince, 42 years old and looking every bit the modern pop star, in designer glasses and a tailored suit. What is it like performing here?
12: Being able to perform something that started as an entertainment for the masses in front of so many people is a great honor and pleasure.
7: Mere days before social distancing, they showed up en masse for Ebizo's sold-out run here one stop on his national kabuki circuit. But in a country with an aging population, the groupies aren't teenagers. This longtime fan admitted to being a little nervous to see the star in person.
1: I'm so excited right now.
7: After the show, a crush of well-dressed patrons, overwhelmingly female, waited to send him off. His longtime friend, Denjiro Tanaka, the lead musician on stage, performs with Ebizo every day. What distinguishes him as a performer as you see it? I would have to say his aura is something which is very unique, which you can sense almost coming out of him. It's the power of his eyes and of his gaze. Yes, the eyes have it. That stare is called a mie and it's Ebizo's signature move, like John Wayne's walk. The Mie is meant to draw the audience in, conveying a character's raw emotion while the crowd goes wild. But when we asked him to tell us more, Ebizo politely declined. Could you teach it to me? No. Difficult. Family secret. So you... Yes, basically. We traced Ebizo Ichikawa's family secret all the way here, to the Narita-san temple outside Tokyo. This Buddhist priest told us the famous stair was inspired by this god, Fudo. In the 1600s, Ebizo's ancestor, Ichikawa the I, an early kabuki talent, came here to pray to Fudo for a son. His prayers were answered. A son was born, and with him, a family dynasty, the Ichikawa Danjiro line. Through the centuries, they would canonize a repertoire of 18 classic plays. Ebizo's grandfather, Dandro XI, and father, Dandro XII, were bonafide kabuki matinee idols, famous as much for their good looks as their skill. Ebizo trained under his father and performed with him until his death seven years ago. Last year, Ebizo announced that he would take on the Danjiro name, the 13th man in the Ichikawa lineage to take on that title. What does that mean to you? Well, I think
12: the time has come.
7: What do you say that? It's my fate,
12: you know. This is the house I was born into, what I have trained for.
7: Is there one quality shared by all the men with the Danjiro title? I think really holding the whole future of
12: kabuki on your shoulders.
7: That's how you feel? Yes, it's not just about me. I really need to think
12: about the whole enterprise.
7: Marco Shima, an American living in Tokyo, translates kabuki plays into English and has followed these kabuki blue bloods. I mean, Ebizo looks like a kabuki actor, and he comes from what people think of as a pure kabuki family. So, uh, people all say, he's a thoroughbred, and Japanese love thoroughbreds. That said, Kabuki has never been an especially profitable enterprise. Given massive overhead, giant casts on ornate sets, the hope is that Ebizo will be a one-man boom to the industry. What's going on in the audience during performances? It's just like a sports crowd. <laughs> You know, there are times when you have your beers and hot dogs and times when you cheer, times when you pay attention to what's going on and times when you don't. You'll also hear audiences during these performances yelling out, Narita-ya. This is something called a yago, or house name. If I were going to cheer you on, I wouldn't say, 60 minutes! Now, I mean, every, everyone would know that. Ebizo's yago comes from the temple at Narita which has been very, very important to generations and generations of, of uh, Don Judo. So there's real connoisseurship here. A connoisseurship. You should feel free to yell out the 60-Minute Tiago anytime you want. For all its idiosyncrasies, Kabuki is ruling business. Actors perform for hours every day, sometimes twice a day, month after month.
12: Every morning, I have to assess my condition.
10: Oh.
7: I have to
12: figure out, can my body do this today? Can it do that?
7: You speak like an athlete. Do you think of yourself as an athlete? Yes, but
12: with no off-season.
7: Not unlike some athletes, Ebizo indulged in his share of nights out in his youth, once getting into a nasty bar brawl. An entire country worried the injuries to his face would thwart the trademark stare. His friend Tanaka recalls this rebellious phase. Yes. When he was young, he was a bit of a bad boy, you could say. He was quite famous in the kabuki world
1: for that. But I think to be a superstar, in a way, you do need to be a bit of a bad
7: boy. Otherwise, getting up on stage in front of thousands of people, you wouldn't be able to charm them with your performance. Leaving his bad boy days behind him, Ebizo proved himself last summer in Tokyo taking on 13 roles in a four-hour production. Here he is, slipping off stage as the dutiful wife and reappearing seconds later as the warrior. Can you name the roles, do you remember?
12: Yeah, I can't remember them all right now.
7: There are too many of them. And Ebizo plays yet another role full-time, single dad. It was 10 years ago, with fanfare befitting a royal wedding, that Ebizo married a popular Tokyo newscaster, Mao Kobayashi. In short order, they had a daughter and a son. But in 2014, Mao was diagnosed with breast cancer. When she passed away three years later, all of Japan went into mourning. What would you like people to know about her?
12: About Mao.
13: I just think about my son and daughter. The way they are maturing, without Mao,
12: none of that would have been possible. She was a human overflowing with love, and I hope people won't forget that.
7: He told us he tries his best to balance performing with parenting made a little easier when his son Kangen, now seven, announced that he would follow his father into Kabuki. Kangen is now in the same line of work as you are and your father and his father. How do you feel about that? At the (inaudible) moment, he's
12: talented. He's very cute. But I'm sure one day he'll face some struggles in his life, in Kabuki. And so I need to make sure I can support him without being
11: overprotective.
7: His son, Kangen, is already adept at tapping into his emotions as an actor. Watch how his eyes well up while he rehearses a scene about a boy who's separated from his father. I've seen Kangen already does connect with the audience. Did you teach him that?
12: No, I think it really comes naturally to him.
7: Also a natural gift, Kangen's ability to sneak in a nap during makeup. As for Ebizo's eight-year-old daughter, Reika, a dancer in training, going into the family business is not as straightforward. Women are banned from most kabuki stages, though perhaps not for much longer if you ask her father. Does any part of you regret that she won't be able to have a career as a kabuki actor? It's It's not set in stone
12: that she can't one day become a kabuki actor herself.
7: You'd like to see more women involved in kabuki? It
12: Who's used to be that everybody was, you know, kabuki. kabuki, you know, it's only for men. But I think that's quite an I old-fashioned way of it. looking at it.
7: If anyone can modernize the art form, it's Ebiza. His influence in Japan transcends kabuki. His face moves magazines. His multi-million dollar endorsement portfolio includes McDonald's. In case in point, he recently adapted Star Wars for kabuki. But the future, as they say, will have to wait. This week, Japan expanded a state of emergency in the face of coronavirus to cover the entire country. Kabuki theaters, like theaters across the world, went dark last month. As they wait for the lights to come back up, this source of continuity, the man who will braid together Kabuki's past and its destiny, also waits, proudly, an artist in full bloom.
13: When we say someone grew up during the Depression, we're referring to qualities as much as an era. Thrift, resilience, deferred gratification. Shared hardship changed the country's values. What will endure from this era? We praise teachers, first responders, doctors, nurses, and others for what they do and what they represent. Will this fade? Not if we don't let the praise drop. Not if we commit to a future worthy of their present sacrifice. This golden hour should not be wasted. That's how author Amanda Ripley put it. Golden hour is that perfect moment of light before sunset. In New York this spring, it coincides with the time clapping for health care workers ends. This generation's mission? To preserve the golden hour. I'm John Dickerson. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.
0: If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad free